Welcome to Ink and Magic, a podcast where we read and discuss the writing craft, world building, and romance of paranormal and fantasy novels. If you love books with bite, set in worlds of magic and mayhem, then you're in the right place. My name's Nikisha Shanae. I go by an S. And I'm Leslie. I write as El Penelope. And welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by HEA Quest from Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association. HEA Quest is an online-only four-hour event featuring three stellar panels of industry experts, as well as breakout rooms for networking with fellow authors. If you write any combination of fantasy, science fiction, and romance, from paranormal romance to space opera, then you'll want to be there on Saturday, January 20th, 2024. The speakers include some of our favorite people, like author Sarah Cannon, author coach Becca Syme, along with my former editor Monique Patterson from the Bramble Publishing Imprint. For more information or to register, go to events.sfwa.org slash hea-quest. Welcome back, everyone, to another craft episode of Ink and Magic. Today, we're going to talk about openings, opening lines, and opening chapters, and how we get hooked as readers and how authors can better utilize them to reel readers in. Yes, we are. I'm very fascinated to have this conversation because openings are not my strong point. Endings are. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting. I feel the opposite way. Mm. I feel like endings, I'm always much more nervous about openings. I feel pretty confident whether or not that's justified or not, but I do feel pretty confident about because I think, and, and and I specifically try not to spend too much time on the opening because I feel like usually I don't start writing the book until I have a good opening. Mm. Occasionally I'll change it, but over half the time, the original opening line that I had and the idea for the opening chapter stays the same throughout the rest of the drafts. So, Wow, I do not do that. But I'm always fascinated by openings because I'm also a pretty... Now, I don't have a short attention span necessarily, but I will DNF a book in a minute. And I will DNF <laughs> after the first line. Like, I, I have done this more than once. I, I open the free sample chapters. I read, do my reading on a Kindle. And I don't buy a book without reading the sample chapters, even if it's free. Like, I just don't want to clutter up my Kindle, even if it's in KU, Kindle Unlimited. So I look at the first sentence and then the first paragraph if I get past the first sentence. And usually by then, I'll know if I can at least read most of the book. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to finish the whole book, but it means that I have at least a level of enjoyment. But if I can't get past the first paragraph, which happens more often than you'd think, then I don't bother to download it or buy it, regardless of whether it's free or costs Oh my gosh, Leslie, no. We're complete opposites in this. Well, (laughs) well, first, I rarely will download the sample. Rarely. Very, very rarely. Yeah. I read books that have been recommended mostly I okay. don't go and just search out books that are like, let me find a new mm. space sci-fi romance okay. book. I do no, that a lot. I don't. Well, you read way more than I do, but I don't do that. I will listen. I, I, listen, I get a lot of my book recommendations from you, but also <laughs> from my podcast. Like I love the Fade It Mates podcast. I'm mm-hmm. constantly listening to other podcasts where, where authors and readers are recommending books. And I listen to the experience, the emotional experience that they had. So I'm there for that experience, those feelings. See, I take book recommendations from you. I trust you. And I like, <laughs> there's one or two people that I trust, but like other people I've tried and I just, 
I've learned not to trust them because I did not have those same emotional experiences when I read those books. So I'm I'm on the hunt a lot. It's like I'm falling down rabbit holes. And I I find books in a variety of ways, like a wide variety of ways. Um, but yeah, I always test them out first because even 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 with that, I have like I'd have to open up my Kindle and see how many unread books there are. But it stresses me out to have so many books on the Kindle that are unread, even though I have definitely over a thousand um, like <laughs> unread. And part of those are are ones that I actually did read but didn't get all the way to the end of the okay. Kindle marks it. But a good portion of them are partials, DNFs that is never downloaded. So openings for me are really important. Okay. And they let me know a lot. So I wanted to talk about opening lines and okay. what should they do? They, because a lot of times, you know, if you're a writer and you are in classes, you're, you're learning, you're getting a lot of attention is being, a lot of attention is being placed on opening lines. Maybe sometimes too much attention because there is this sort of how much does the line matter? Does it have to be this perfectly crafted, amazing thing? It does not. I'm going to give some examples of ones that I think are great, but there's certain things that it has to do. And really it's about setting the tone and capturing the reader's attention. So one of my favorite uh, writing teachers and writing book writers is K.M. Wyland from helpingwritersbecomeauthors.com. And she says that beginnings are the sales pitch for your entire story. So a lot of the part of the process of me reading a new book is like, look at the cover, read the blurb, read the first page, paragraph, free sample. If I get past the cover and the blurb, then the, the, the third part of the sales pitch for me is that beginning, the, the opening and the opening line. And uh, so you should really op open with conflict and with character, establishing the setting, the tone, and with like motion and movement if possible. If you think about, like we both come from TV and film, um, most TV shows and films have an establishing shot at the very beginning. Like you're looking at the very first shot. What are you seeing? A lot of times it's setting. It's a wide shot of a city or a landscape or something like that. And that's that's there's a reason for that because you have to kind of ground the person. So you're grounding them not just in the place, but in this person, the main character or the first main character that you're going to be following. And yeah, they your first line doesn't necessarily need to be memorable. You know, like one of the most famous first lines from literature is Pride and Prejudice, which many of us can probably quote if we are <laughs> Jane Austen fans. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I believe Ines has a book called In Want of a Wife. Right? <laughs> I do have a book called In Want of a Wife. Which is interesting. I can't remember how I, I have a lot of books. I can't remember how I opened that one. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking, because again, yes, we both come from film. Leslie more than I, because I switched over to TV after a semester in film. But one of the first things that we're talk, talk about in the opening scene, you need to set place, time, mood, and tone, right? Mm -hmm. And I always remember the example of, um, it was the Eddie Murphy film, or Beverly Hills Cop, right? Yes. Okay. Eddie Murphy was not originally cast in that film. Do you know who was originally cast in that film? Who? Sylvester Stallone. <gasps> what? Can you imagine? So it could still be in the same place, Beverly Hills, the same time yeah. period. Wow. The mood and the tone would be different. And that's <laughs> what I look for because Eddie Murphy's hilarious. Sly can be funny, but it would be a completely different, like, oh macho-y tone, right? Yeah. That's what I'm looking for when yeah. I open up a book. 
mood and tone. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, you know, sometimes that comes through in the cover, like ideally, but a lot of times mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, because cover tropes can be similar if you're if you're a little grittier or maybe a little bit of humor. I mean, ideally, you're going to do that in the cover, but enough authors don't that, yeah, opening that first page and seeing what kind of experience am I going to have is, is super important. Yeah. So, okay, first lines, um, voice is also important. You know, if when writers are, are often trying to get traditionally published and submitting to agents and editors, a lot of feedback agents and editors give is about voice. It's one of those things where you know it when you see it. Like no one can really, it's hard to define what voice is, but you can get grabbed by a really powerful voice. I think voice is the author. Like, and it's really, I think it's, I think so even if we're writing in first person or if we're writing mm-hmm. in third person, if we're writing male, female, I think it's that voice of the authorial voice. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some people try, like when you have pen names, you try to change it. Like I have a sweet pen name and I have a steamy pen name, but the very few readers that cross over <laughs> from my sweet and my um, steamy, they say they can still hear my voice and my voice I think, these are my words, not theirs. I think I'm witty. I think I always try to include some kind of a lesson. Like I love to use metaphors. Mm-hmm. And so I try to like, even even within sentences. So that's like, that's my voice that you would hear. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like Jane Austen is, she was funny. Like if you ever sit down and actually yes. read her prose, yes. she was funny. Right. And so there's the author voice, definitely. And I, yeah, your metaphors are just unparalleled and you can like spin them out very, like you you get a lot of work out of your metaphors and that's kind of how you like to write. And there's things that each author does like that, but there's also the character voice, you Mm -hmm. know, and I I know for certain books, I'm trying to do a lot more voice than other books, Mm -hmm. like for the monsters we defy which takes place in 1925, I was really focused on what does that sound like Mm -hmm. without being like caricatures and like dialects and stuff, like black people in the twenties, but giving it and giving different parts of it, different voices. Whereas I'm less concerned about that with like Savage City, which is my post-apocalyptic futuristic shifters. It's, I'm not as concerned. Although this last book that I'm currently working on about to finish I have a character from our world. It's like a portal fantasy. So he he came from our world when he was 16 years old and it's been sort of isolated. I really do focus on trying to make his voice sound different than the people who grew up in that world who are much more formal. And, you know, there's like the royalty and there's this society that I'm trying to create, whereas he is from Oakland in ostensibly our time period. So there's character voice that you're trying to communicate age, gender, race, class, all of these things with how the character thinks and talks. This is first person, even in third person, at least how their inner voice works or how their dialogue actually works. All of that goes into voice too. And so depending on if you have like a narrator telling the story, uh, whether you're third or first or whatever, there's different levels to it that you focus on depending on I think the author's goals and also the emotions that they're trying to elicit from the reader. Like, what do you want the reader to feel when they're reading this? What kind of experience are you trying to get the reader to have? See, I think that I have cracked the LPJ voice. (laughs) Okay. I think Leslie consistently writes these very strong women. And I, she writes alphas, but they're very patient alphas. They're not just like, (laughs) I need to bowl her over. 
And I think that with the world building that Leslie does, there's always, it's the world building is always a character as well. So I feel Mm -hmm. like Leslie's books are always these three characters, but then it is interesting because I'm thinking about the very first two characters, the very two first females that you've ever written or ever published. Mm -hmm. Um, Jasminda and Kiara. They Mm -hmm. are the same, but different. And you can hear it. So it's like your voice, but the tone of these two heroines is different even though they are they are like on parallel roads yeah and because those two characters i'm an enneagram type five i write with enneagrams they're both enneagram type five so and you're right they are very similar but they've had different experiences and different like growing up very differently so their characters are different even though their core is similar and then after that i tried not to write any more enneagram type fives for several (laughs) books (laughs) I'm not sure if I have another one yet because I was like, oh, I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. I'm, I'm staying in my comfort zone. Let me veer as far away as possible, which I mean, and those other characters still have my voice, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. through a different lens with a different yeah. tone. Yeah, yeah, it's the lens. Yes, it's the lens that changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like you put the, you drop this person in a different place in time right. and, and they're going to, their, their core, like who they are at their core it's going to remain the same, but they're going to have to react differently yeah. to all the stimuli that's happening around them. Yeah. And I think I had a question from, I was doing a live stream with other writers and one of the questions was about differentiating character voices and things like that. And, you know, the, the answer to that is every character is like a person who has come from somewhere different. And so they're going to look at things differently. So when if you're trying to say you had to rewrite a scene from a different character's perspective, you can't just change pronouns and, you know, proper nouns and first names and things. They're going to think about things differently. They're going to focus on different things in the room. They're going to emphasize different things when they speak or when they listen. And that's part of writing is like getting to know your characters and getting to know how they're going to react in different circumstances and with different stimuli. I completely agree with that because that's, again, I think that's where voice comes from as well. Like if you have a character who is confident, they're going to speak differently mm-hmm. than a character who's insecure. If you have a character who's optimistic, they're going to speak differently than a character who's right. pessimistic, right? Exactly. So it also, like, the way that their family dynamics, if you have, if, again, if you take Jane, if you take um, Elizabeth from Jane mm-hmm. Austen, and Friend you put her as a, she was a parent, she was the daughter of a single mom, she's going to behave differently and talk differently as as though she was the one who had grown up in that big family, right? Mm-hmm. She's right. going to behave differently if she has a teaching job as opposed to if she has a job in the factory. So you can take the same character, yeah, but it, then it becomes the environment, right? It's nature and nurture, just mm-hmm. like psychology. So yeah, and all that gets gets introduced from the very beginning. Ideally, you're doing that, you know, as you're revealing, you know, all of the writing stuff has to work hand in hand, and that's something that I emphasize a lot. You know, and when I'm teaching world building, it's like, yes, I'm talking about world building, but I can't talk about that without character and plot because they all work hand in hand, mm-hmm. and they're all integral parts. So I don't think that you can do one without the other. Like, I definitely don't believe you can just world build in a vacuum. I mean, you can, people do it, but I don't think that's the best way to do it. Just build this world and then figure out the characters later. Like, uh, I mean, (laughs) sure, but you would get so much more out of it if they're all feeding back on each other. And, you know, so other things that the first line needs to do is create a sense of intrigue or mystery 
and give you imagery and sensory details. Um, Kay Weiland talks about this in her book, Structuring Your Novel, which I love and I use all the time. Um, she breaks it down into these five parts for a first line. It has to have some kind of inherent, or it could, it could have an inherent question. And I'll talk about that more in a second. Character, setting, a sweeping declaration, and tone. Those are the five parts of it. So I wrote down a couple of either famous first lines or first lines from some of my favorite books. And so, okay, we've talked about Daughter of Smoke and Bone on this mm -hmm. podcast before. We both of ours, a favorite of both of ours. So the first line of that book is, walking to school over the snow-muffled cobbles, Carew had no sinister premonitions about the day. So that first line, it's not a question. There's no question mark, but there is a question because it's like, she had no sinister premonitions about the day. Well, you know, something's going to happen. And it, I guess it's kind of a, a declaration, but there's a tone, you know, snow muffled cobbles, even the word sinister, sinister premonitions. You're getting a taste of the flavor of Lainey Taylor's amazing, excellent writing. And you're setting setting, you've got the character in there, you know, she's going, there's so much happening mm -hmm. in this one sentence. Mm -hmm. And then there's Uprooted by Naomi Novik, which has one of the best first lines ever. This is one that I find ex extremely memorable, even though they don't have to be memorable. But her first line is, our dragon doesn't eat the girls he takes, no matter what stories they tell outside our valley. Like, you have to read the next sentence. I'm not putting that book down. No way. Like, I need to know what's happening. What is this dragon? He doesn't eat them. Okay. <laughs> like, so much is wrapped up in that. And I love it. Um, current queen of books, Colleen Hoover, <laughs> has great first lines. I mean, there's a reason that people love her. And I know that she's getting a lot of hate because of so much love, but like <laughs> anytime you rise to the top, there's going to be haters. So Lord. don't believe the haters. Colleen Hoover is amazing. I will stand forever. Uh, Maybe Someday, which is one of my favorite books by her, which I think I have called it the perfect book before. And I stand by that. First line, I just punched a girl in the face. <laughs> You have to keep reading, right? Like, come on, you're not going to stop. And then I was looking also at books with prologues. So, you know, the first line of the prologue versus the first line of chapter one. When you have a prologue, yeah, it's, you know, technically that's the first experience the reader has with the book. Although people do skip prologues, which is a sort of chaotic energy that I cannot get behind. But like, I need to read the prologue. If, if prologue is not a foreword, it's not like not part of the story. <laughs> it's there for a reason. And a good writer, it will be there for a good reason. Anyway, prologue of the Sea of Tranquility by Kachi Malay, which she never wrote another book, at least not I under know. this name. Why did, why did you bring this book I'm up? Sorry. Like This was one of, this is a book I read before, I think it was before I started writing. Yeah, I still I, randomly think about this book. I still do too. And I feel like I need to reread it. Oh. Another perfect book like so amazing anyway prologue first line i hate my left hand which is just like a sweeping declaration right like what does that mean there, there are inherent questions there we need to know more chapter one first line dying really isn't so bad after you've done it once now that's intriguing right yeah and then the other one i had was paradise by tony morrison which is just like another stellar powerful first line that also is very interesting so the first line of this book is they shoot the white girl first the thing about that is 
during the course of this book, you never find out who the white girl is. <laughs> it's about, you know, the first chapter, these men have come to this place where these, all these women live alone outside of town and, and massacred them. And you'd learn their stories, but definitely she never tells you exactly who the white girl was in this black town. So those are just, I don't know, some of my favorite first lines that I wanted to highlight as having, you know, you can kind of look at first lines from a lot of books and see see what's going on. Now, we're talking about Nalini Singh on this podcast a lot. And I think that, you know, she has strong first lines that aren't necessarily memorable. They're not going to necessarily go down, you know, in a, an article full of first lines, but they're doing the work that needs to be done. And we're keep, we're still reading that makes us want to not just continue in the paragraph, continue in the page. Um, I'll go, so Slaves to Sensation, book one in the series. Chapter one, first line, there's a prologue. And the prologue's first line is good too, but I'll skip to chapter one, which is Sasha Duncan couldn't read a single line of the report flickering across the screen of her handheld organizer. So you're getting a question, like mm -hmm. we want to know why, character, setting, there's a handheld organizer, there's some technology, there's world building. Um, yeah, there's a lot happening there that I think is powerful. I feel like in all of those, there was an inherent question. And I, I that's my favorite thing, something that makes you lean forward and makes you want to know the next sentence. I think that's the job of the first sentence to get you to write, to read the next sentence, which is the job of the end of the paragraph, which is to get you to read the next paragraph, to get you to turn the page, to get you to go to the next chapter. So I love when you, when you don't give all the information, mm -hmm. whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, I think it's important. Now, bad opening lines. No. <laughs> no, I so for me, when they whenever a book opens with dialogue, it's instantly difficult for me to follow because I don't know who's talking. I mean, you're gonna tell me, but the dialogue in and of itself, usually, unless it's very, you know, audacious, does not have these things. It doesn't necessarily ask an inherent question or have a sweeping declaration. It's hard to get setting and tone from dialogue. It's very difficult. I think you, when you try to start a book with the first line of dialogue, you're just setting up yourself, you're setting a huge task, you know, a very difficult task for yourself to get in these things, mm -hmm. to have them happen. So I literally <laughs> downloaded a sample. The first line was, oh no, in dialogue. I, I, I read a little bit more, but I didn't read much more because it was not off to a good start. It did not harsh, continue well. And then I wrote a made up sentence because there was a book, a fantasy book that uh, I started. And one of the books where I did not get past the first sentence because the first sentence was like this in spirit. So this is my made up version <laughs> of the first line. In the year of the eagle, Gorwin and Corneris traveled to see King Valen Morland, son of the wicked mage Elmer Loratus, and on the path to Mount Craydark, crossed the Sarlaman Sea in the country of Omalaria, just south the border of, easy, of, of East Valandra land. Now imagine a sentence like that with Every proper noun has three apostrophes in it. And this was the book that I DNF'd. All proper nouns, all apostrophes, all one sentence, info dump, world, fantasy world. I could not like orient myself and I did not care at all. So when you ask an inherent question, it makes the reader at least care enough to like, and I said, keep reading the next sentence mm -hmm. and the next one and care more. And then you're increasing the care factor and all of that as they go along. See, that's my that's, that's my number one um, thing that I need for to happen very early on in the book. I I need the empathy. 
I need yes. to care about the character. I don't care about this person. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to know who Colleen Hoover is. Um, and you know, me and Leslie have a difference of opinion about Colleen Hoover. I don't read her because she will make you cry. She will I make you like stop. Cry. Yes. Like, You're going to be in tears. Bring the tissues. But she, but you want to know who this girl punched. You want to know who yes. the white girl that got shot was. You want to know mm-hmm. who this, um, who's going to get married with Pride and Prejudice. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 I, I, my, my new, um, uh, equation is inherent question and empathy. Yeah, no, that's good. I think that because when you have character embedded in there somehow, some kind of character, that I think that's how you embed the empathy, even in these lines. Like we don't know much about any of this because it's only one sentence, but that care, something is is introduced in there that makes us want to to lean in and learn more and. That's the point, right? That's what we're here for. We're here to read and keep and keep reading. So, opening chapters. Mm-hmm. Once we get past, you know, that that first line, the rest of the opening chapter, what is it supposed to do? And I think it's supposed to introduce the character, the setting, the conflict, the tone, hook the reader and make them care about what happens to the characters. So, you know, what we're trying to do in the first line, we're expanding that because the first chapter has to keep them. And by the end of it, you know, we want them to go to the second chapter. So all of these things, you know, first chapters have to do so much weight. And so many times authors spend a lot of time tweaking their first chapters. And it's understandable, you know, because we know this is this is the first introduction. We're still in the sales pitch. You know, we're pitching until we get them to to the point where they're not going to put down the book. Also, if it's first person, a lot of times I've seen first person where I'm reading, I don't know this character's name or gender or age. You know, you're dumped in this person's head, but by the first chapter, you kind of need to know these things, whether it's first or third, but it's a specific problem in first because if no one talks to this character, then we don't know their name we might go a long period of time without knowing their gender. And unless that's something you're trying to do on purpose, you know, like it, it's disorienting for the reader. And um, yeah, it can be really hard to keep people hooked when they're disoriented. I know we both practice at the altar of GMC. That's goal motivation conflict. Um, yeah, yes. Goal motivation conflict. <laughs> um, but I think I've told you that I add, I add to that. I think that every every scene and or chapter needs to have a scene purpose because I am a a structuralist Mm -hmm. to the nth degree. Each of my scenes, including the opening or the setup or the ordinary world, there's a, there's a purpose to that Mm -hmm. scene. So I always will write down in my Scrivener file, what the purpose of this scene is. And then under the purpose of that scene, I write down the goal for the the character whose head we're in, their motivation, their conflict. And then at the end, and we're not talking about endings yet, I write the twist. And I think, I think I've, I think you led me on to this, but I think you led me on to this because you like Sean Coyne's. Um, yes. The story, the five commandments of storytelling. Yes. And you talked about the valence, mm-hmm. the emotional valence. Right. I thought that was really interesting. But because I because I come from TV and I had to do a lot of, you know, how do you get us out, um, get us to the commercial and get us back in? So you mm. had to figure out how at the end, how to do something to, to make sure that people weren't changing the channels. And that's what I would call the twist, which is what I think you would call like that emotional valence. 
that yeah, that happens at the twist or the turning point. So the the polarity or the valence is like the shift. It's either positive or negative. So we start at either positive or negative, and we end. It, you know, ideally, you're not ending at the same valence uh, or polarity that you started with. So over the course of the scene, the character either, either you know starts positive, and then something happens, the turning point that turns it negative, or they start negative, and something at the turning mm -hmm. point turns it positive for the emotional value of the scene. So it's like, what's what that has to do with the goal, like what the goal that they're trying to achieve, do they achieve it? Usually that's positive. They don't achieve it. That takes them negative. And that's a shift. And we want to watch the stories just to make sure it's not the same every time. Every scene is not negative to positive, negative to positive right. over and over again, because right. that's going to feel flat. You have to vary it. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I love my formulas and I think I at least just came up with a formula okay. for scenes inherent question plus empathy and then the purpose of that scene the goal the motivation the conflict and that twist yay <laughs> we need to put that on a worksheet or something right? <laughs> you're coming up with new theories every day hey that's what we're here for people right you are welcome <laughs> so okay when you're doing opening a, a book you know the question is where do you start that's another question i've gotten from writers where how do you know where to start and a lot of people start too early. I tend to start too late. I do often things backwards and other writers because I'm not a writer that cuts, you know, my drafts are short. I have to add on to other drafts. And so likewise, going backwards, I sometimes start too late. And I, the first time I, I knew this was my very first book, Song of Blood and Stone. I went to a workshop, the Vona Writers Workshop, which is a, a workshop, a week-long writing workshop for authors of color. And my teacher was Marjorie M. Liu, who is a paranormal romance, and now she writes graphic novels. But I did the, you know, I workshopped the first chapter, A Song of Blood and Stone. And at that time, it started, I think right now, where chapter two starts, or chapter three, something like that. Because, you know, it was the beginning, it had been the beginning for many drafts, but the feedback I got was that we don't know this character. We don't know enough about it. I was really starting at the inciting incident, which is advice you see a lot, like start there. Sometimes that's not the right advice because sometimes when you start at the inciting incident without having the setup before it, the normal world before mm -hmm. it, you don't know the character enough. So you don't care. You don't have that empathy and you, it can be difficult to create empathy while, you know, a conflict is occurring in that moment. Sometimes if you're starting in the middle of things in media res, then you're not given enough time to know and care about your main character. And that was something that I discovered. And I was like, oh, and I, I've done that since then. I'm like, I try to learn the lessons, but it can be difficult when you're, when you hear all the time, it'll just start at the inciting incident, right? That's really, really interesting because again, you know that I am of the religion of plotting and yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the hero's journey has the ordinary world, then the mm -hmm. call to adventure. Yeah. Save the cat has opening image setup, then theme stated in catalyst, which is would be the inciting incident. Yeah, yeah. and even the romance beats has you ha you start with the slice of life. Right. And then the meet cute and the no way, whatever reason that they have against falling in love. So you're right. Mm. And and these can be short. I mean, and you know, different genres have different tolerances for the length of these beats and these plot points but there's a lot of conflicting writing advice out there <laughs> writers need to be very aware that every they can't listen to everything and definitely not everything for every book and i don't know there's 
this sort of alchemy that happens between, even with structure, even following like Save the Cat or Hero's Journey, you're putting that on top of your own style, your own voice, Mm -hmm. and the needs of your story Mm -hmm. and how it's coming out of you. So all of these things have to be balanced and weighed and all of that. That's, and that's the artistry of it. Like, I think that there's an absolute science to storytelling, which is why I study structure. But then once I get into the story, I, and, and if I'm going in an order of a particular plotting method and the characters are like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, right? and I will switch it because that's where the artistry comes in. Yeah, you have to be fluid. And I've experienced that too. Like, I'm trying to stick to the structure and it doesn't want to stick to the structure. And I'm like trying to wedge it in, mm-hmm. but that does not work for me, at least. Mm-hmm. And I have to just go with the flow and be like, okay, I know intuitively I do understand structure. And so even if I feel like I'm going off track, I have learned to trust myself enough to be like, it's still going to be, it's still going to basically follow. Like, the big points are going to be there. The points where, you know, you're still going to have conflict. It's not going to be boring and all of that, but you can veer off and just not try to be so tightly adhering to the structure. So opening chapters, you know, in standalone books, I think differ a little bit from when you're doing a longer series because, you know, ostensibly they are, they've been reading several books in the series. They're hooked. You have to keep them. You can lose readers in a long series if the book is trash or if it doesn't do its job. Um, so I do think that, that you're doing a little bit different work in, you know, once, you're, once you get past a trilogy, even, or even in, even in a trilogy like books two and three, but especially in a longer series like Side Changeling, when it's like, okay, what do we have to do in book five and book six on these opening chapters and opening lines? And so I think that what they need to do is to reintroduce the world. If you are traditionally published, it'll be a year between books. And if you're self-published, it'll be whatever. But, you know, unless you're incredibly fast, you're still talking months often between books in a series. So you have to reintroduce the world and the conflicts, especially with ongoing conflicts. You're also creating a new hook and a new question to keep the reader reading. So, you know, they've bought book five, you, you want them to keep going and read it to the end so they can buy book six. So all the same things apply as what we've already talked about. But there's also character growth and evolution if time has passed between the books and we know time in the real world between reading the books. You have to be familiar, get surprising. You want to give the same experience, but different and something a little bit different and new. And I think Nalini Singh actually does that really well. You know, as we progress in her series, She's established certain things and certain structures that she comes back to, like the dream lover and, you know, a sigh, falling in love with someone else, so happening to leave silence, which is also introducing new things and taking us new places and keeping us interested with things we haven't necessarily seen before. She's expanding, expanding the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The world, the conflict, the characters, mm-hmm. the, the types of conflicts that the characters have, although they'll be similar. But also they're the backstory. She mm. expands the backstory each time. I think because she's figuring it out, but she's mm-hmm. doing it very seamlessly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And she she does a great job with the foreshadowing, like longer term arcs. Mm-hmm. You know, setting the stage, planting seeds, two and three books ahead of time for things that are going to sprout later on. So we're we're hooking this book and keeping us interested in all the intrigue and machinations, but future books too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then I think just wanted to talk a little bit about prologues because 
prologues get a bad rap, you know, for a <laughs> long time, people are like, no prologues. And anytime someone says no, or never do anything, I take that with a grain of salt. Like sometimes it's fine. If you do, if you do it well, a good prologue is good. A bad prologue is bad. But people use them as crutches sometimes. And that is often when it is bad, when it is because of some kind of failure to give us enough in the meat of the book. Sometimes a prologue should just be a chapter one. Sometimes it's not necessary at all, you know, like, and it's like, how do you know? Sometimes you just have to have a reader tell you, but look at the prologue, look at what it's doing. Why is it there? Is it expanding things? Is it a different time period? Is it a different character? Those are all good uses of a, of a prologue, a different narrator in a different time period, telling you something that would just, you know, is foundational, something that the reader should really know, but it couldn't fit in the main, in the main book. And, you know, Nalini Singh is doing that with the prologues in the series where we understand certain information, but we have this other narrator, this kind of omniscient narrator who is giving us information, usually about the sigh and silence and the history of things that might be a little awkward to get out in this detail from a character in the book, from a character's perspective. I, these characters don't know this information because a lot of times it's happening in the past or we're getting context that the characters that we're focusing on in the book don't understand and that is helpful for the reader. So I think prologues are can be good. Actually, you know, a lot of people say that editors and agents tell them not to do prologues. My first editor asked me for a prologue in my oh, first wow. book. Yeah, Song of Blood and Stone did not have a prologue originally. And I was asked to add one. Now, fantasy, I think, has more bandwidth for prologues and epilogues and glossaries and things like that. But um, so it might be genre specific also. But I always, always use that as an example of when people say, oh, editors say don't do this. Well, some editors, but some other like editors. One or two editors, editors probably said it and then, then it became gospel. Because they were so tired of terrible ones. <laughs> That's probably right. When I think of prologues, I liken them to TV teasers or mm. cold opens. Mm -hmm. And I feel like teasers and cold opens, that, that they're of two varieties. I feel like they're a slice of life. Like, again, Gen Xers here. So <laughs> I always think about the Cheers cold opens where, oh, and it was yeah. always like Norm walking in, right? right. Everybody'd be like, yeah. hey, Norm. Norm. Like, like, how are you? And then he cracks some kind of a joke. And it was just a slice of life. It was just reminding you that we love this world. Or friends, like friends, like Joey might come in and they were like, hey, Joey, how was your Friday? And he was like, I just had a date with this girl and something. <laughs> and it was, it was like completely outside of what was about to happen. Mm -hmm. But it just reminded you of this is this is the world that you love. These are the characters that you love and welcome back into the world. So there could be that slice of life or it could ask the story question. And my favorite, the one that I always remember, or well, there's two that I always remember. There's Buffy the Vampire's pilot um, show open or really any of them. It would introduce the monster of the week. So mm -hmm. it was almost like that was the story question. Could Buffy defeat this week's monster? That's like Castle, too. It always yes! started with the murder. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the body would drop in Castle. Yes. Sometimes yes. literally <laughs> drop. So, yeah, I like I like those those two styles. That that makes sense to me in my mm -hmm. analytical brain. It's either a slice of life, and that would work if you're doing like a series. Just kind of get everybody back together, remind us of this found family or this yeah. brotherhood. 
um, or the small town or ask the story question that you're going to resolve at the end of this story. Yeah. One of my least favorite ones, although it can be used effectively, is the one where we get the peak at the dark moment, like someone's oh. just been stabbed or they're running for their life from the, the, the villain. Yeah, t- the Twilight style, yeah. <laughs> and it takes you 75% of the book to get back to that place, yeah. and then you read on from there. I mean, it it can, it's a hook. That's true. You're like, okay, I need to know what happens. But sometimes it's the only hook. And there have been books where it's like, I'm only reading to find out. Like I'm skimming because I just, I'm curious, but I am not being hooked by this any other way. That technique is interesting because I call it the Sherlock Holmes technique Mm. because it was, who was it Guy Ritchie that did the Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. Where he would like telegraph what he was going to do. And sometimes it would go as planned and then sometimes it would go different. This is in Lothair too. Cressley Cole did this in Lothair. Where, yes, where he would telegraph what he was about to do and then it wouldn't go exactly as planned. Like I like it when it doesn't go, like set us up for it to go as planned. And then at crucial moments, it doesn't go as planned. That's what I a great way to do it because it's surprising the reader the audience it's like you think you know whenever you can surprise the audience in a good way and give them more than they thought you know you want to treat the reader like they're smart but also you know lead them away like oh i was smart i figured this out oh no, no i didn't, didn't figure this out <laughs> That's i gotcha <laughs> yeah like i have i have dreams of writing a thriller one of those twisty thrillers Ooh, where gosh. you have all these twists and turns but it doesn't leave you feeling cold because sometimes thrillers are really big now um but sometimes they the twists are like that doesn't make any sense i'm sorry you can't do that like that's just a trick (laughs) a dirty trick sometimes there's a feel-good trick and then there's like a dirty trick i don't like the dirty ones yes all righty so now it is time for everyday magic do you have a moment of everyday magic you'd like to share with us in us it's cold leslie and you know how much i don't like the cold i don't know why i live in the north i live like right on the mason dixon line actually no now i live right below it i I was born yeah. in maryland now i moved into virginia <laughs> i was like 25 miles away from where i was born so i'm below i'm technically below the mason dixon line now anyway it's cold yes and i i have i've been doing so well I would get up, Leslie and I write together um, weekday mornings and I would get up before we would write and I would go to the gym and I'd get on the treadmill and man, the, the scale was saying some nice things to me <laughs> and then it got cold. <laughs> you were on a treadmill inside. <laughs> That's what I did. I ordered this tiny little treadmill. It's like the, one of the world's smallest treadmills. It's so small. And now, and I set up right next to my bed. So I step out of my bed. <laughs> Onto the treadmill. <laughs> to the treadmill. I have nice. no excuses. But I, I was so excited when the box came. And I, and I took it out and set it up. And yeah. Yay. My treadmill is my joy. So that me and the scale will start talking to each other again. Because we haven't said anything to each other in like a month. Because <laughs> it hasn't been nice to you. It's been it's So been I can stop talking to it. <laughs> what about you, Leslie? Well, almost opposite to you. I mean, I do not like the cold either, but I've been getting up and taking daily morning walks just about every morning, even though it will be like 28 degrees. I just bundle up, get out there on the path. And I'm trying to do the whole light in your eyes thing, which is good for your circadian rhythm to get you to sleep better. And sleep is really important. And I've had historical instances of insomnia that I'm trying not to have. So on my morning walk uh, the other day, it has the day after it snowed, I think. And there was just, normally I'll see birds and, you know, wildlife, there's deer and stuff. 
But there were like two dozen birds just going back and forth across the path, landing, taking off. They were all different. It was like a red one and a blue one. It was either a cardinal or an oriole and like a blue blue bird, blue jay. I'm not a person who knows what birds are. Whoa. But um, they were all different kinds. And they were just a lot of them just kind of in front of me, just flying back and forth and landing and taking off again. And it was like a party. It was like they were having a party. <laughs> On the path, and I would just walk through it, and it was lovely. It was amazing. It was like one of those moments of nature oh bringing you joy into your life. And so, everything that sounds awesome. <laughs> All right, guys, we thank you so much for hanging out with us during this craft episode, and we hope that there has been some everyday magic in your everyday life as well. So Make sure and let us know what you think about this episode. You can leave a comment on YouTube with your thoughts on the episode. You can share it with a friend who loves romance. And please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can always check out our book schedule on our website, inkandmagic.net, so that you can read along with us on our next book-themed episode. And we will see you next time. Bye, Bye everybody.